Our reading, our reading for today uh, is Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Listen now to the word of the Lord. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. The word of the Lord. Uh, our service this morning. Um, for those of you who are here for the first time, uh, I want you to know we are uh, working through the New City Catechism. And so at the beginning of service, we'd just like to do a little review and uh, recite the questions and answers together. And so we're going to do that beginning with question 20 this morning. Let's forget the first slide. So those of you who, uh, again, if you are memorizing them as you should, uh, Please feel free to close your eyes and and recite them. Uh, Otherwise, uh, just read along. Question 20. Who is the Redeemer? Redeemer 21. What sort of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? 24. Why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Twenty-five. Does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? Yes, because of Christ's death, God will remember our sins Twenty-six. What else does God's death, Christ's death, redeem? Every part of all creation. Twenty-seven. Are all people, just as they were lost through Adam, saved through Christ? Twenty-eight. What happens after death to those not united to Christ by faith? Twenty-nine. How can we be saved? Only by faith in Jesus and today's question is number thirty. What is faith in Jesus Christ? And the full answer is: Faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in His Word, trusting in Him and also receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel 
Um, but what we are going to memorize is just that last line, receiving and resting on him alone for salvation. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Okay. Uh, just as a note, uh, we had some technical difficulties the last several weeks, so you may not have seen the, the keys, but the keys are available, so make sure you pick up the keys or the ones that are available on your way out today, because um, the keys do have the, um, the revised wording that we're going to memorize, so uh, if you use the app, it's not going it's it's to be much longer, so you want the, the answers, the shortened answers. Uh, which will be on the key, so make sure you uh, pick one of those up to help you uh, memorize. All right, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for uh, this day that you have made, and we are glad to be here together um, in this place to worship, to hear your word, to sing your praises, to offer up our prayers. So now, God, in in the hearing of your word, help us to trust your word and in trusting to have life and life eternal in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Luke chapter 6, just before the reading this morning, Jesus has given his Sermon on the Plain, a kind of uh, condensed version of the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he talked about discipleship, about loving one's enemies, not judging others and doing good. And as if to test those words, that sermon, Jesus is asked immediately afterwards to respond to a Roman centurion in his hometown of Capernaum. Centurions, as you know, uh, were military commanders of the Roman army. And despite the propaganda positioning them as skilled, strong men concerned with the well-being of those under their protection and responsible for maintaining peace and order, they were, foremost of all, representatives of an unwanted occupying power. And as such, they were generally hated or feared, or both. And in a small town like Capernaum, centurions could wield incredible power, and everyone would have a pretty good idea of what kind of man and leader this centurion would be. According to the Gospel of Mark, Capernaum is the center of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And we know that he's already cast out demons. He's performed a number of healing miracles, including that of his, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, her fever. He's even preached in the synagogue in Capernaum, which we are told here was a synagogue built by this centurion. It's likely that Jesus and the centurion had heard of each other through gossip and local news, although they had never met one another face-to-face. So this centurion reaches out to Jesus because a favorite or perhaps a valuable servant of his is gravely sick. Now, this is no small thing for him to do this. Imagine today in a place like Afghanistan where an American soldier would ask a local Afghan imam for help, or an Israeli soldier asking a Palestinian priest for help in the Gaza Strip. It suggests a high level of humility, of desperation, and compassion for this servant, for the centurion to reach out to someone like Jesus. And so how does he do this? First, he asks for a favor. 
He follows the normal social protocols and customs in reaching out to Jesus. He summons and sends Jewish leaders or elders as he might command some of his soldiers. As an officer representing Rome, the centurion could and did direct imperial resources to the local population under their governance, and in this case has used his influence or perhaps even his own resources to build a synagogue which helped to maintain a good working relationship with the local people. Politically, remember, this is a system of patronage, and the centurion is the benefactor of this town, and the elders are obligated to him, and they want to make sure that they obey to stay in his good graces. I mean, this is how life worked then, and it's pretty much how life continues to work today. We know that it helps to know people in positions of power. It can help you get a job interview or a scholarship, backstage passes to a concert, a referral to a busy doctor. Someone helps you from a position of power, and then you are in some ways indebted to them and look for ways to pay them back in the ways that you can. The system can be mutually beneficial, but you know it's also very easily abused. And if you are unconnected or without a benefactor, without that access, then you never get a chance to receive help or justice. You know, this uh, reminds me of uh, one of the uh, movie quotes that I always butcher um, that I try to impress my wife with when we were dating. Um, You know, in The the Godfather, there's a scene where uh, Marlon Brando, who plays... Uh, Don Corleone, the godfather, and um, I'm not going to try to imitate him, but he's, you know, I used to tell my wife, you know, uh, uh, he would say something to the effect of, you know, you come to my daughter's wedding and you ask me for a favor. Um, I guess I did try it. Um, but I got the sense of the quote, but, but it's completely butchered. But in the film, in the film, a man named Abonacera comes to see Don Corleone, who's the head of the, the mafia, for those of you who are too young to know what the godfather is. Um, and he asks him for a favor because his daughter has been wronged. And so um, Don Corleone, you know, he sees this man who's never come to him before, and he feels very disrespected that this man has come now to his daughter's wedding and to ask this favor to murder or to hurt these, uh, these men who have hurt his daughter. And so uh, he's like, you know, I'm not going to listen to you. And Bonacera tells him, you know, you know, I can pay you. I'll give you money. How much would it take for you to, you know, break these guys' legs, something like that? And so Don Corleone says to him, so I'm going to quote him now. He says, what have I ever done to make you treat me so disrespectfully? If you'd come to me in friendship, then that scum that ruined your daughter would be suffering this very day. And if by chance an honest man like yourself should make enemies, then they would become my enemies. And then they would fear you. And so Bonacera then then kneels down and and he says, be my friend, Godfather. And so Don Corleone extends his hand and he kisses his ring and now, you know, he's his friend. And uh, Don Corleone says, good. Someday, and that day may never come, I'll I'll call upon you to do a service for me. But until that day, accept this justice as a gift on my daughter's wedding 
So, you know, they're, they're talking about friendship, but we understand that there's something much more threatening beneath that conversation. There are rules of interaction and social norms and protocol to be followed in this conversation. I do you a favor, and later you will do me a favor, no questions asked. And, and you know, in the movie, uh, not to spoil it too much, but there's a cost to this favor that is being granted. A bargain is made under the guise of friendship. Now, the Jewish leaders, when they go to Jesus to speak on behalf of the centurion, there's something akin to that that's happening. It's not quite so sinister as in the Godfather, but they are obligated to the centurion. They argue that he is a good man, that he's worthy of Jesus' attention and healing, and perhaps he is, but again, we know that by reputation, centurions were not good men, or the, the village didn't consider them that way. And, and he appeals to Jesus' you know, uh, ethnic or racial pride. Says, you know, he loves our nation. You know, he, he loves us. He's the one who built us, our synagogue. Look at all these things he's done for us. So I, I don't know that we need to be overly cynical about their motives, but I want to be clear that they're not simply asking for help because they are so compassionate about this sick servant, this slave. Nor do they care about Jesus at all because these are the same people who criticized him a few chapters earlier for eating with Gentiles. And they are looking you know, at every turn to find a way to destroy him. But now they seem to have no qualms about Jesus entering into the home of a Gentile and becoming ritually defiled because he is entering the home of someone who they know can help them in the future. They may not even believe Jesus can actually do anything, but there's political capital at stake and they want to make sure they're in on it. Second, some friends. While Jesus is on his way, presumably to heal the centurion servant, he sends a second group to meet Jesus I think because he's surprised that Jesus is actually coming with this this entourage, this crowd. But this time, instead of sending the local Jewish leaders, he sends some friends. And they convey to Jesus the centurion's direct words, which tells me that that first group of Jewish leaders passed on the centurion's wishes very loosely. They tell him that he need not come to the house. And perhaps that was the original message. The centurion says he is unworthy to host him. The Jewish leaders had emphasized his worthiness, but the centurion claims for himself an unworthiness. It may be polite self-deprecation, or perhaps it's a way of communicating to Jesus, the elders did not speak what I communicated to them. Or we can simply take them at face value because Jesus seems to do that. The original method or the original um, scheme or strategy was to call in a favor, which probably is not something he was trying to do. But here now, he's doing something a little bit different. He is not calling in a favor that is owed to him. He's sending friends. He's not using his authority to command Jesus, which he probably could, Rather, as someone who is sort of outside of this this faith community, he's asking for some friends that perhaps they have in common, perhaps some Jewish friends, it's unclear, 
to act as an intermediary to, to kind of introduce him to Jesus and to ask for this help. Now, I think it may seem like a small detail here, but I think this is highly important. The centurion needed a community of friends to help him connect to Jesus. I mean, you know this. All of us need friends at some point to carry us to Jesus, to make our faith possible. You've heard repeatedly that faith takes shapes, not in some vacuum alone in the mountaintops, but in community, in community with friends. Now, what you may not be aware of is how powerfully a religious community and friends can shape your faith and your behavior. Robert Putnam is a political uh, scientist uh, at Harvard. I say that so that you'll think he's impressive. Uh, He writes about the social breakdown of communities and relationships in America. Uh, You may remember his uh, book, Bowling Alone, which I've referenced a number of times, um, where he talks about how the people in America are bowling more, but they're joining bowling leagues less. And for Putnam, this is emblematic of the breakdown of community in America, that people are not even willing to make that, I mean, that small commitment of joining a bowling league and would rather bowl alone than to, you know, kind of have to be with a group of people. And, and so, um, so he, he writes about things like that. And in a, in a more recent book called uh, American Grace, which he co-wrote with David Campbell, uh, he writes about the American religious landscape based on these very comprehensive surveys he's taken. And uh, he was interviewed uh, about the book, and he said that, that he was shocked, he was shocked to, to discover, quote, that people who are active in religious communities are systematically more generous, better neighbors. They're more likely to work on community projects. They're more likely to give to secular causes as well as religious causes. They're much more likely to volunteer. They're more likely to give blood. They're more likely to let a stranger cut in front of them in line. I mean, isn't that good news? Despite how religious people are often portrayed in the media and stereotyped, as science-denying, narrow-minded, homophobic, judgmental bigots, it turns out, in fact, that religious people are measurably, demonstrably better citizens and neighbors. Not just Christians, but religious people. I mean, I find that very reassuring. It tells me that somehow the, the faith that we learn in church is getting applied in real life that all the, the words about love your neighbors, at least some of that is getting practiced in reality. But that's not the most interesting part of his study for me. Putnam found that what determines a religious person's neighborliness is not how deeply a person believes in God or even how committed they are to their particular religious practices. What matters is the number and quality of his or her relationships in their faith community.
community. Listen to that again. What determines a person's neighborliness is not based on the depth or sincerity of their theological beliefs, not in the intensity of their spiritual disciplines, but on the number and quality of their relationships in that community. In fact, he goes on to say, if you don't believe in God at all, but you go to a lot of church potlucks because your wife or your husband is religious, then you will be just as good a neighbor as that person who is religious and who believes and goes to church because of that. Conversely, if you are incredibly religious, if you pray every day, you pray five times a day, you memorize the Bible, you go on mission trips and you say that your faith is the most important thing in your life, but you sit alone in the pews, you pray alone, and you don't have many or close friends in the church, then you are, statistically speaking, just as bad as the non-religious people in their study. I, I find that really compelling. What we might call as the, the, the most important mark of Christian discipleship, loving our neighbors, being neighborly, appears to be more influenced by friendships than by spiritual disciplines or beliefs. In fact, Putnam says this, quote, they seem to be like supercharged friends. The more friends you have like that in your religious congregation, the more generous you are, the more likely you are to volunteer, the more likely you are to help old ladies cross the street, and so on. And we actually can see in our data because we interviewed people twice. We can see that when somebody gets a new friend in church, they become nicer. Conversely, if they stop being so involved in their community of faith, they stop being so nice. And he says that the supercharged friendship effect is unique to religious communities. It doesn't work if you join bowling leagues. There's something about a faith community which he doesn't quite understand why, but that's where it happens. The centurion is not a Jewish believer. It's, it's pro- it, he's not. As representatives of, of Rome, they would have had to participate in, in pagan rituals and emperor worship, and no you know, Orthodox Jew or Christians later would fully participate um, in this kind of um, career. But he had friends who were religious or new religious people. And so I want to suggest that his kindness, his humility, his generous disposition toward the community may have been a result of those friendships. Now, I don't mean to suggest that the goal of our faith is to be nicer and to be you know, good neighbors. I hope that happens. That should happen as we live out our faith. But it seems to me if you want to grow in your discipleship, and the key thing about that is, is to grow in love, then you need to get more connected with the church and the people in the church. If you want to be just pragmatic, joining a church committee and attending those meetings regularly 
may be more important than praying at home alone. Right? If you want to grow in love, join a church committee. I mean, seriously. Third, the centurion displays this this astonishing faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has seen evidence of faith before. Obviously, his disciples left everything to follow him. I mean, that's that's faith. Um, But this centurion has such confidence and trust that Jesus, he's just shocked. It's the only time that the Bible uses this word of being, you know, marveled or or amazed uh, of Jesus. Usually it's the crowds that are amazed by the things that Jesus is doing. But here, and here only, Jesus is amazed. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith, right? Because that's where he expected to find that kind of faith. But he didn't. And here it is in this this person that he doesn't even know who he is. And, And what's so astonishing about this faith is because the centurion knew so little about Jesus. And yet, based on that tiny morsel of information, he is willing to receive and rest on Jesus alone for the healing and the life of his servant. He approaches Jesus with unexpected humility, considering himself unworthy of hosting him, but, but using the, the, his life experience as a soldier... And about, I mean, he knows how authority and orders are obeyed. And he understands that and applies that to Jesus and has complete confidence that Jesus has that kind of authority over disease, over sickness, over death. Right? We don't know exactly what he knows about Jesus. He probably heard something. We know he heard something. He doesn't have a complete picture. This is before Christ has been crucified and resurrected. Maybe he heard a sermon. We don't know. But based on that very minimal and incomplete picture of who Jesus is, he's able to place his complete and absolute faith in the power of his words. You know, I wonder if he went to synagogue occasionally and heard the story of creation, of how God spoke the universe into being, and made that connection also with his life of orders being obeyed so instantaneously. He's not sure if, in fact, he says he's not worthy or deserving of this healing, but the fact that Jesus could do it if he wanted to, of that he has no doubt. And that's just really, it's it's just astonishing that someone could have that kind of faith. You know, I said last week that the best way to think about faith is not believe or faith as some object to, to you know, hang on or to grow, but, but the word trust, to trust Jesus. Not to you know, uh, have some correct ideas or doctrines about who he is, but to trust him, that what he says and who he is, is who he really is. And the centurion models this for us. He marvels at him, not because the centurion has somehow, you know, is able to articulate theologically correct statements about who Jesus is, but because he simply trusts him based on what he knows. And he trusts him because he has come to accept, he must have come to accept, who Jesus is. He doesn't know who he exactly is, but his words suggest to us and reveal an acknowledgement of Jesus as one who has authority 
over sickness and death. That's what he knows, and he's going to act on that. You know, I tell the, uh, you know, the confirmation kids today, they took their, their, their Larry today, uh, their, their final test, and it was 11 pages long. It's a long test. It's a hard test. Uh, I doubt anyone in this room could get an A on that test. Well, maybe one or two of you could, but I mean, it's, it's a really hard test, and I don't expect them to do that well. Um, <laughs> but, I told, you know, but I told them, the, the only question that I'm really interested in is, is the first question, and that is, who is Jesus? Right? And I tell them, you know, what does it mean to become a Christian? What does it mean to become confirmed? It's this, simply this. Based on what you know about Jesus, and right now, you only know this much. We, only, we all only know this much. We're never going to get a complete picture. But based on what you know about Jesus right now, can you trust him with your life? If you can say yes, then you're ready to be confirmed. That's what I tell them. If you don't memorize the Nicene Creed, it's okay. I want you to memorize it, but it's okay. If you don't know the books of the Bible in order, or the Ten Commandments, you know, I'll cringe a little, but it's okay. <laughs> right? But who is Jesus? Based on what you know, can you trust him? And that's what the centurion did. And it's amazing because we know so much more than he did. And yet our faith is so much less than his. We don't need to have more of this faith thing. We don't need more information about Jesus. We need to exercise. We need to trust Jesus more based on what we already know. That's the challenge of our faith. That's why Jesus said you only need faith the size of the, of the tiniest of mustard seeds. You don't need that much because it's not a matter of how much you believe that determines whether or not you're going to have healing or salvation. You know, I think a lot of people mistakenly think that faith is somehow this sort of subjective feeling, you know, maybe some sort of a placebo effect that if, you, if you're earnest enough or if you believe hard enough that somehow that that will impact the, the results or, you know, God will listen to you more because you're more sincere or, or whatever. But, but that's not faith. That, that is not biblical faith. It's not wishful thinking. It's not this kind of, you know, hoping or anything like that. It's the object of your faith that is going to determine whether or not it has healing and saving power. It's the objective reality. The object of our faith, of anything, is what determines whether or not it will be effective. Not the sincerity of your own faith. And that's what the centurion understood and acted upon. You know, you've, I'm sure you've probably heard a variation of this illustration, which I'm going to give. Um, you know, I found this a very good way, at least for me, to think about it. I want to share this with you. Um, in my town, there's a, there's a man-made lake, a Carnegie Lake, uh, which was built in the early 1900s uh, for the uh, Princeton University crew teams to practice, uh, you know, rowing. And during the winters, when it gets cold enough, you can go on this lake and ice skate. And so when our kids were little, um, we went a few times, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Now, the way it works is the snow comes and the lake freezes. How do you know 
if it's thick enough or you know, solid enough so that when you're skating, you don't fall through. Well, the township has a thing where they will put up a flag to say, it's cold enough, it's solid enough, everybody can go and skate. So you wait until you see that flag, and when you see that flag, or when my wife sees that flag, then she tells me to go take the kids and go ice skating, right? So that's, that's, how, that's how that works. Now, I see the flag, and I take my kids, and we go skate, and I have absolute trust that the township knows what it's doing because they know they're going to get sued if, they, you know, if, if they're mistaken, right? So I know when I see that flag, it's safe, I have faith, I trust them, and we go and we have a good time. Now, now suppose you don't trust the government. Maybe you've had some bad experiences with, you know, with the local mayor or something. And so you see that flag, and you see other families out there skating, but you have some doubts. You don't have a lot of faith that that ice is thick enough or that the, you know, the township knows what it's doing. But your kids are like, oh, we got to go, we got to go. So, so you take your kids and you go skating. But the whole time, you're skating on the edges because, you know, in case, in case the ice collapses, you want to be able to get to shore. You're skating, but the whole time, you're not able to venture out. And you, you have this sort of anxiety the whole time you're skating because you aren't sure and you don't have the faith. Now, listen. Whether I believe with all my heart that ice will support me and whether you doubt that ice is going to support you makes no difference whether or not that ice will support you. The only thing that matters is that ice is thick enough to support you. It doesn't matter whether you have faith in it or not. But if you have faith, you can enjoy it much, much more. You have the freedom to skate. You're free from anxiety. You can have joy That's what faith can do for us. And I think that's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. The centurion was able to have this kind of incredible experience because he was able to say, I trust Jesus. I know he can do this. While most of us, most of the time, we we pray with with so much doubt and we kind of hedge our bets, instead of praying for healing, because... We ask for, like, help us to find good doctors instead. I mean, that, that's a good prayer too, right? But there is a kind of doubt that, that lingers and prevents us sometimes, I think, from really experiencing the, the, the freedom and the joy that is possible if we would just place faith. Because, again, it's not about whether or not we have that faith. It's a matter of our enjoyment of that faith because the faith itself in Jesus, what Jesus has done, the thickness of Jesus, so to speak, that's there. That's an objective historical event. That is there. And it's a matter of can I put my weight on this? And you can. And you can. And and that's what faith is given to us for so that we can do that. The religious leaders said the centurion was worthy And the centurion said, I am not worthy. Jesus doesn't care. He doesn't care if you're worthy, if you're good, or if you're not worthy and you're bad. He only cares, do you trust me? That's all that matters. Final thought. You know, as far as we know, Jesus and the centurion never met one another. We are never even told, actually, that Jesus said anything to heal the servant. We assume that, and presumably, it, maybe Jesus said a quiet prayer, 
um, and the faith is rewarded, the servant is healed, and Jesus marvels at this faith, and that's the last we hear about this centurion. Now, if you were Jesus, wouldn't you want to meet the centurion? Wouldn't you want to go into his house to congratulate him and say to the other disciples, guys, this is the way you're supposed to be, right? Wouldn't you want to do all that? Wouldn't you want to recruit him into your little band of disciples? I mean, this guy's awesome. What a great role model. He's disciplined. He's well-connected. The town loves him. He's got leadership skills. I mean, this is the guy you want on your team. Maybe you could have him start, you know, a new ministry, Soldiers for Jesus. Right? At the very least, you'd want to replace him with Judas Iscariot. (laughs) But Jesus leaves him alone. Doesn't even shake his hand. Why does he not do that? I don't know. It could be that because it's the sick who need a physician and not those who are well. It could be that Jesus himself even now is not yet ready to begin a full-blown Gentile ministry and the centurion kind of sets a, uh, or anticipates a future ministry that we're going to find out about in Acts, with Acts 10 with Cornelius, another centurion. Maybe Luke is writing for us to tell his community, hey, listen, you know, Gentiles are good people too, as their community is now transitioning from a, a Jewish uh, predominated group of people to, to more Gentile people. Maybe he's doing some of that. Um, there could be a number of different reasons why there isn't a, a deeper connection. But I think, as I, at least for me, as I've been thinking about it, uh, maybe for us, it's a reminder to us of our own calling. Uh, it, it seems to me that we are in the same situation as this centurion. Like him, we don't get to see Jesus directly. We don't. Like him, we've heard about him. Like him, our faith isn't perfect. Like him, we're coming from the outside. We're not part of the ancient Jewish faith and the community of God's ancient people. And we have people and friends around us who can help us connect to Jesus. And like him, maybe it will take a desperate moment to really kind of test our faith. You know, maybe, maybe, a, uh, maybe a, a frightening medical diagnosis. Maybe the death of a, a, you know, a parent or a loved one. Maybe the unexpected loss of a job. Maybe a painful breakup with an important relationship. We'll all face those kinds of moments sooner or later. When we feel helpless when we realize that despite all of our monies and our connections, despite all of our exercising and dieting, there's no more help. It's no use. But maybe it's in that moment, like the centurion, we will have an opportunity to discover something deeper and something better. We can exercise our trust. 
we can discover that this, the distance of time and space that separates us from the first century and from Jesus need not hinder us. It did not hinder the centurion. And maybe if we can trust him, we can amaze Jesus once more. Let's pray together. God, we are um, thankful for your word. And we are thankful for the faith of this centurion who sets for us a way of trusting you that we confess is often um, not the way we exercise our own trust. So we ask this day, help us to respond to you with trust, with greater trust. Lord, whatever it is that people here are going through right now, whatever struggles that they're facing, God, would you just fill them with your spirit, the spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead so that they might place their trust in you more fully. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to invite you all to the Lord's table. The Lord Jesus Christ on the night of